So before we get started, let me just give you a quick roadmap of where we're going to head in our time together. So uh, in a moment, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to go through and I'm going to kind of summarize where we were at last week. And then we're going to jump back into the story of the lame beggar and what happened uh, after he was healed. And that's going to be out of Acts 3, uh, verse 11. So if you want to go ahead and put your thumb in there. And so what we're going to do is as a church family, we're going to read that entire section together. And then after that, we're going to go back through and we're just going to go verse by verse and we're going to see what God might be teaching us in each verse. And I really believe at the end of our services uh, today, God's going to be asking each one of us to respond to him. And so we're really excited. Been a lot of people praying specifically for these church services this week. And so we're just very uh, glad and excited that you guys are here and willing to be with us. And so can we pray and then jump into God's word? Father, we are, uh, gosh, we're just in awe of you. Um, It's been really cool. This morning on Facebook, all of my worship leader friends all over the country have been just putting out these gorgeous sunrises. Um, And just keep getting reminded of in your word where it says the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. And God, we are just asking that that same glory would descend into this place right now as we begin to just open up and to study your word thankful for these opportunities. God, may we just over the next 30 minutes, can we just press in together and be changed, Lord? Because I know that's a huge prayer for me, that every time that our church body body gathers together, may we not be able to leave the same person we were when we came in because we experienced you. And so, Lord, we are thankful for who you are and what you mean. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we were in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And it was a really cool story about Peter and John. Uh, They were making their way to the temple for their evening prayers at what time? That's right. You guys are paying attention. That's awesome. Did anybody set a little alarm like I I said just so you can remember and go, it pops up on your phone and go, okay, God, I see you right there doing some work, you know, 2,000 years ago. Pretty cool, right? And so at three o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John are making their way to the temple for their normal prayers, and we're told that this is something that they did often. And so they're making their way up, and sitting at the gate, there was a lame beggar. And from what we can tell from Scripture, this lame beggar had been carried to that gate day after day for over 40 years. And he's sitting there, and he's asking alms out of people. And if you'll remember, we, we studied a little bit that word alms, and alms, all that they are is anything given generously to the poor. So it could have been clothing, it could have been food, it could have been money, it could have been all kinds of different things. But basically, all alms are are something that somebody would ask for that would help them to survive and alleviate some of their need. And so the beggar looks at Peter and John and he asks for alms, and Peter says, look at me. And he says, neither gold nor silver do I have for you, but what I do have I give freely in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up. And it says, immediately, the lame beggar's feet and ankles were healed, and he was able to stand. And then from there, we were told that the beggar goes running into the courts of the temple, which we were talking about, you know, uh, the Mishnah would talk about that anybody with any kind of infirmities uh, wouldn't have been allowed into the temple courts. And this could have very well been the very first time that beggar would have been able to make it actually into the temple. And it says he was just praising God and that the people were filled with awe and amazement. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. So if you have your Bible, let's open up there together. If you don't, it's going to be up on the screens. So Acts 3.11 says this, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. 
And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So immediately after this healing, Peter goes and he preaches a sermon. And it's such an interesting sermon because many times like today, if we were to actually see a miracle, we would turn it into like a, a testimony service and have people start sharing and it'd be all these things. But what does Peter do? And we're going to start to see, as you saw in that last verse, he calls the people to repentance. That's what he does. And so we're going to study right now uh, what happened after that, that beggar was healed. And so in verse 11, it says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Lori, will you put up the picture for me? And so here's another picture of the temple. Remember, we studied this last week. And why is it a big deal that we do these kind of studies and put these pictures up? Does anybody remember? Because we want the word of God to come to life. This is a real place. Remember we talked about you could get on an airplane right now, fly over there, and you could even stand in some of these places. Isn't that incredible? Because I know it's a, it's a big deal for all of your pastors that as we're up here and as we're in all of our different meetings, we just want you to fall in love with God's word because it's the answer for everything. And we talked about that last week. So here we are. We're looking at the temple. This is the eastern wall right here at the bottom. And to the left would be the eastern or the south wall where we believe at the double gate the beggar would have actually been found. And so it looks like that after the, the, the miracle happened, they went upstairs and they stood right there in Solomon's portico. And so it's, what's really cool is that as you read a lot of uh, the, the, the Gospels, this would have been a place that Jesus himself would have went and taught in. And so how cool is it that after a miracle is done in the name of Jesus Christ, that Peter would then go to a place that Jesus himself would have preached because all of these Jews that were in the temple, they would have seen that place and went, wait a second, he's one of Jesus' disciples. We just saw this crazy miracle. What is going on right now? And it says that in that moment when they see the beggar and he's up in the courts and as Peter's making his way to the portico, it says that they were utterly astounded. Have you guys ever been astounded? It's going to be really important for you today um, to kind of go with me. And I used this, this phrase last week, kind of in our sanctified imaginations, to kind of put our place, like to, to be in that place of the perspective of the Jews, actually in that temple at that time. And so to be utterly astounded, it basically just means um, to strike dumb with amazement. And so um, I'm a huge University of Michigan football fan, Okay. Uh, I love football. Uh, it's been something my dad raised my brother and I up to love. And so in 2007, my brother and I uh, made the decision to go catch our very first University of Michigan football game in Ann Arbor at the Big House. 
And so we get on the airplane and we're all excited to go out there. Um, it should have been a big year for the University of Michigan. Our top three players uh, forewent the draft and decided to come back. We were ranked number five in the country. It was a beautiful day, 75 degrees and sunny up in Michigan. And any of you guys from up north know that's just gorgeous. And so we go and we're expectant for a big win for the University of Michigan that day. So the game starts. And we're playing Appalachian State. Now, for those of you that don't know football, there's, an, there's something called the FBS, the Football Bowl Series, and the FCS, which is the Football Championship Series. Right, Tim? Okay, good. I got it right. Whew. So the FBS are all your larger schools, the Alabamas, LSUs, your Division I teams, and then your smaller schools, like in Appalachian State and things like that, and your Division II schools are in the FCS. And to that point, I don't even know if an FCS team had ever beaten a top 10 FBS team. So the game starts, and things are not going the way we were expecting them to go. And so the score is going back and forth and back and forth. And so finally, we're getting towards the end of the game, and the quarterback throws a big, long uh, pass down the field, and they get down to like, I don't know, 20, 24-yard line. And all we have to do is kick a, a short field goal, and we would win the game by one point. So we're sitting in the stands, and you can imagine, 110,000 people at the University of Michigan. We all like linked arms, and we're just, okay, we got this. You know, that's a short field goal. We got this. And so we're all kind of sitting there, and I remember seeing the snap, but then I didn't see anything else after that because everybody stood up, and the next thing I hear is, no! And I look out, and you look on the field, and Appalachian State blocks the kick, picks up the ball, and starts running towards their end zone. Well, eventually, I think it was the kicker, tackles the guy with the football. Time runs out, and Big Bad Michigan loses by one point to little FCS Appalachian State. So here's why I tell this story. Remember I said there was about 110,000 people at this football game. You could have heard a pin drop after that happened. Now there was a couple of Appalachian State fans, you know, who were just beside themselves. But we were in utter astonishment. We were astounded at what we just saw. Now I know that's a silly football story. I get that. But I want you to understand that feeling. We've all had that feeling where we just, we're having a hard time comprehending what we just witnessed. And that's what the Jewish people would have been feeling in that moment. It says they were utterly astounded at what they just seen. And it says that they actually ran to where Peter was because they needed to hear what Peter was about to say because they were just having a hard time just putting together what was going on. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And so I love what Peter's doing here as he begins his sermon. He wants to make sure that the people know that it had nothing to do with the disciples that that man was healed. That was God's miracle, not theirs. And so I was... Uh, Really struck this week, um, Eric Smith is doing our, our life group notes, and he had a fantastic question that I had been thinking about all week and have been trying to answer, and you guys in life group are going to have to answer it too, but here's, here's my answer to this question. How many times in your life, when you've witnessed God do a miracle, did you try to take credit for it? Because Peter, in this moment, wants to make it very obvious they had absolutely nothing to do with it. And so... Um, I don't know, I've been on staff for about maybe two years or so here at the church. Uh, Michael Lott had just come on as our administrative pastor, and the finances weren't real great at that time. And so I remember going into a, um, 
<laughs> into a meat. Uh oh. Hold on. Make sure it's not hitting my beard. Is that better? Okay, cool. So we go into this meeting, and Michael comes in and says, Hey, guys, we got a big decision to make. Finances are not looking good. Um, we only have enough money in the bank right now to either keep the lights on or to pay the missionaries. And so your pastors in the room were saying, I mean, it was immediate. Oh, pay the missionaries, obviously. So we pay the missionaries. Uh, maybe I think maybe the next day all the checks went out to pay for all the missionaries. And I don't know if it was a day, two days, a week later, Michael goes to uh, check the mail, and there was a giant check in the mail. And that amount of money was more than enough to keep the lights on, to pay the missionaries, and to get us by for another couple of weeks. It was a miracle. And I remember when I would first tell people that story uh, about that money coming in, I would almost share it like I had something to do with it. You know what I mean? Like, well, I made the righteous and pious decision, and I honored God, and obviously that money was going to come in. And I can just imagine my God standing up in heaven, looking down at me, going, oh, my beautiful, sweet boy, you had nothing to do with that. Because the reality is I had nothing to do with whoever this family was that decided to give this large sum of money. At some point, God convicted them to give and to give generously. And so they must have come up with a number that they believe came from the Holy Spirit. They had no idea when they wrote that check and they sent it into this church, the impact that it would have just on our finances, on all the pastors being able to see God literally do a miracle in our midst. And there was a time there I think I felt like I was responsible for some of that in my immaturity. I was young. But how many times in our life do we sometimes try to take the credit for what God himself is doing? And so Peter, in this moment, making it very clear to the Jewish people that are there standing in the temple with them that this had nothing to do with them. Verse 13, it says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now this Peter, he's a good preacher, man. He's real smart in how he deals with everything. And so as he comes through and he wants to make sure that the people know that they had nothing to do with the miracle that God just did through the name of his son, Jesus, he wants to point them out to go, it was God. Who, who, whose miracle this was. And then he goes on to say, but it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It was your God that did this miracle. It wasn't just any God. It was the God of the Hebrew people themselves, the Israelites, because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're, they're the first line of the people of Israel. And so he's, Peter's trying very hard for them to get to realize this is your God that did this miracle. And then when he goes on, he talks about that God um, glorified his servant. It's really interesting that, that that's the verse that Peter would point back to. It goes back to Isaiah 53 and the, the idea of the suffering servant, which was a prophecy that all of those Jewish people would have recognized as a prophecy for the coming Messiah, the Messiah that they had been waiting thousands of years for. Peter, in this moment, is trying to get them to realize we had nothing to do with it. It was only God. And the God that did that miracle is your God, and Jesus Christ was the coming Messiah. But yet you denied him. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. 
Can you imagine being one of the Jewish people standing in the temple and you're starting to put the pieces together? Oh my goodness, that was my God. Oh no, I'm responsible for the death of the Messiah. Can you imagine how they would feel in that moment? You see, Peter, he wants to make sure that they know that they are responsible because here's the interesting thing. I mean, I would have to guess that there were people standing there in that moment listening to Peter's sermon that very well could have been there when Pilate was making the decision. And Pilate made the decision to to let Jesus go, but the people said, no, give us the murderer instead. Can you imagine the conviction that the Jewish people would have been feeling in those moments? And then it goes on to say again in verse 15, um, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. You see, people would have all known, they would have heard that Jesus was put in the grave and three days later, he would have risen from the grave. And I know that they probably were trying to still reconcile all that. It's really interesting. There's a a Christian apologist by the name of Dr. William Lane Craig. He's probably like, like next to Ravi Zacharias, like our big guns that are out there that are defending the faith for us. And so Dr. William Lake Craig, he, he, he debates all these really high-level, like, atheists, um, and he, does, he debates, like, all these Muslims and things like that, and really is trying to get people to see that there is a God. And he, so he has these five arguments that he uses in these scholarly debates. The first four are, like, philosophical in nature. Some are scientific in nature. Um, and it's really interesting. Richard Dawkins, who's a really high-level atheist, said that Dr. William Lane Craig, hold on a second, might have to trim the beard next time. <laughs> That Dr. William Lane Craig is the only person that atheists should be scared of because to this point, after all these years, nobody's ever been able to defeat his arguments. And so those first four, very scientific, and the last one that he uses in scholarly debates against atheists and, and, and the like is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is so much evidence that scholars, they can't deny it happened. Now, they may not believe that he was actually bodily risen and went up to heaven. He may they not believe all that, but they will not deny the fact that Jesus disappeared and nobody can find him. And so there is power in Christ's resurrection. And so Peter is wanting to make sure he points out, you know that that Messiah, he's gone. He's not here. Verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. And so um, he's trying to get the people to see, the Jewish people to see, you've killed the Messiah. It was your God. This was his son. We had nothing to do with this miracle. And then he wants to say, but there is power in his name. Remember when, when Peter actually healed the lame beggar, there wasn't like a little seance or a routine or something special that he did. He just said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up. There is power in that name. And, and there is, we need to have, as Christians, we need to have faith in the name of Jesus. And so the beggar, obviously, he had to have faith that by that name, he could be healed. And obviously, the disciples, they had faith in Jesus' name to actually call on that name to see the beggar get healed. But I think what Peter is trying to get us all to see is how powerful the name of Jesus Christ is. So when I was a kid, um, I was just like riddled with terrible nightmares. Um, Probably the age of seven or eight is when they really started. And I can actually point them back to a moment when this happened. 
Um, I was really close with my cousins growing up. Uh, we lived in Ohio. And my cousin Justin, who was just a few months older than me, loved horror movies. I'm talking like at seven years old, and he's watching like Halloween and Friday the 13th, and his favorite was The Nightmare on Elm Street. I, amen. You, you'll understand why here in a second. So I'm pretty sure it was Thanksgiving, and we were all at my aunt's house, and my cousin and all my uncles and my dad, they wanted to sit down and watch Nightmare on Elm Street. And so my dad's like, come on, Jerry, you want to watch this? I'm like, okay, you know. And so we sit down and we begin to watch it. I didn't even make it far enough into the movie to even see the main character. Was so scared and ended up going downstairs to play with the rest of my cousins. From that night on, and I'm not going to say it was nightly, but it was easily four or five, maybe six times a week. I would have just terrible nightmares about the main character from that movie. And there were many nights that I would end up just falling asleep on the floor in my parents' room next to my mom's side of the bed because I would be so scared I just couldn't sleep. And so we tried nightlights. I would like wake up in the middle of the night and it was a really weird feeling. I would wake up after these nightmares being a cold sweat and I just, and it would just feel like something was like right over the top of me. And so I'm now at this point, I'm probably in my late middle school years. So sixth, seventh, eighth grade, somewhere in there. And I'm talking with my youth pastor from, 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 from back then, Mark Shaner. And I was telling Mark, man, I'm just having these terrible nightmares. It's been going on for years. And I just get so scared. And like at night, I'll turn the light on and I'll put music on to try to get my mind to calm down. I even started to realize that like there was something about when the air conditioner turned on that would bring some comfort. But my dad was like, don't you dare touch the air conditioner. And so I would wait for them to go to bed. And you know how you can go out and kind of like click it up and click it down real quick and the fan would start running. And so I would wait for them to go to sleep. And I would just try to do anything I could to help myself fall asleep at night. And so I'm telling Mark Shaner about all these things that I'm experiencing. And he said, you ever just called on the name of Jesus in those moments? I went, huh, that sounds like a good idea. So a couple days go by, and I have just a debilitating nightmare. I wake up, cold sweat, and I'm just about to get up to turn the lights on and to put my newsboys tape in, because we had cassette tapes back then. And the thought came to me, what would happen if I just said the name of Jesus? And so I said it in my mind first, thinking, oh, that'll be good enough. And nothing happened. I still just scared and sweating and, you know. So then I thought, say it out loud. And so I did. I said, Jesus. I said it again, Jesus. And the craziest thing, remember I told there was like this kind of just weird oppressive weight that I would feel, slowly began to lighten. And so I just kept saying it, Jesus. Jesus, and I remember even throwing it, God, Jesus, I praise you, Jesus. And suddenly, it was completely gone. Still sitting in the dark, and all of a sudden, I'm like, now I'm like feeling confident, and I sit up in bed, and I'm just, Jesus, Jesus. You guys know I'm 39 years old, and when I still get scared, if I get anxious, if anything is going on, you can ask my wife sometimes, I'm just walking like, I don't like to be sick, and so I'll put a blanket on, turn the lights on, and walk the house and just call Jesus' name out. But every time I do that, I find confidence, I find strength, and that's just in his name. I want you to think about, think about the power of his death and his resurrection. And so I think Peter's trying to get us to see how much power there is just in the name of Jesus. And in verse 17, it says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so Peter wants them to get to know, look, I I get it. 
Not all of you were there. Not all of you helped to make that decision to see Jesus Christ be crucified. You may not even be the ones that beat him. You're not even the ones that nailed him to the cross. But even though you may have been ignorant, you're still responsible because of their unbelief. And all of that, that unbelief, all those things had to happen because that's what prophecy said would happen to the Savior. So in verse 19, it says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And so again, can you imagine what those Jewish people were feeling in that moment as they began to realize, as they began to put the puzzle pieces together, that it was their God who did that miracle through his Messiah, Jesus, who was his son, and they were part of killing Jesus. And they had to have begun to realize that Jesus' blood was stained all over their hands. And I have to imagine there would be a moment like we see at the end of Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts that the people were probably just thinking in themselves, what must we do to be saved? Because the guilt and shame in that moment had to have been overwhelming. But Peter goes on, he says, repent. And what repentance is, it's a, it's a turning away from your sin. And so Peter's saying, turn away from your unbelief. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from all these things. Put your focus fully back on God. Believe in Jesus. Repent. And then he goes on to say that if you repent, your sins will be blotted out. And so the definition of this blotted out is, is to wipe away. And if you do a study on this phrase blotted out and you look all over the New Testament, almost every time, or I'm sorry, the Old Testament, almost every time the phrase blotted out is used, it means that, that usually God annihilated a people group. So think about that in context. If you are willing to repent, God is willing to annihilate your sins, completely wipe them out. And then it says, if you're willing to repent, and if you put your faith in Jesus and allow your sin to just be fully blotted out, it says, times of refreshing will come your way. So here's what I think God is trying to tell us, church. I'll tell you what, can we, can we make a deal with each other? Is that cool? If you guys are willing to come week after week, be open to hearing the word of God, I promise you that every time I stand up here, I promise never to tickle your ears. I promise to tell you the truth. And here's the truth. Here's the reason why I'm, I'm spending so much time getting you to realize why the Jews in that moment as they were standing there, why is Peter trying to get them to see it was their God? Why is Peter getting them to see that it was their God and his son, Jesus Christ, that was the Messiah and that they were the reason that he died because of their sin and their unbelief and that the blood of Jesus was stained on their hands? Because the reality is, church, that same blood that's stained on their hands, stained on ours. We are sinners. We can't help it when we are born. Remember we talked about it last week when Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree. They brought sin into this world. And that sin went from generation to generation to generation so that when each and every one of us were born, we didn't have a choice. We are born depraved. We are born sinners in the eyes of, an, of a glorious God. 
And so um, I know for many of us, as we sit here and we think through our sin and we think through all, oh my gosh, I was part of, but I wasn't there. I didn't have anything to do with it, but you did. Because it says in God's word that he died for all the sins of the world. That includes yours. And so I think where we're heading right now in our services and where God wants us to be is God is asking us for a moment where we would repent. Because here's the deal. Doesn't a time of refreshing just sound kind of nice? And I know there's some of us in the room who are, are not believers. We've not given our lives fully to Jesus Christ and believed on him for salvation. But there's also many of us in this room that say that we have, but we're still struggling with sin. Aren't you tired of carrying it? Because right now, in these very moments, God says, if you are willing to repent, he will bring you times of refreshing and he will blot out your sins. Because church, here's the reality. You are not strong enough to overcome your sin. Because if you were, Jesus Christ wouldn't have had to come to die. And so many times, here's what we do. Um, this, is, this isn't my analogy. This is something that we heard at a conference this year. And it's this, is that many times, like in our hearts, we have all these cobwebs. And all these different cobwebs that we have, they they're like represent like a different sin that we have in our life. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's cheating. Maybe it's um, looking at things we shouldn't be. It could be alcoholism. It could be all these different things. And so here's what we do. We think, okay, I'm feeling conviction over, over this particular thing, so here's what I'm going to do. Um, I know I've been kind of lying on my hours at work, and I'm just going to fix that, and I'm just not going to lie anymore, and I'm going to try to show up on time, and you know, things are going to get better. And then one day, your alarm maybe doesn't go off, or you oversleep because you stayed up too late watching a movie the night before, and you get there, and you go, man, I'm only 10 minutes late. You know, I could just throw it down now. I was there at 8 o'clock. No problem. It's a sin. You're lying. Or maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're just dealing with alcoholism. And you think, you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm just going gonna, gonna to cut it way back, and I'm only going to drink two beers, and that way I don't get drunk, and I'm not going to sin in God's eyes. And so what we do is when we do these little things on our own, we think, I'm going to go, I'm going to clean out this cobweb. I get this cobweb down. But here's what happens is, as life begins to start going and things start to happen, um, we begin to sin again. Because remember those days that maybe somebody says something really mean to you or maybe you get in a fight with your spouse and you turn to the alcohol. Church, I said it, you're not strong enough to blot out your sins. And so what we try to do constantly is we try to go and we try to get and we try to kill all these different, these spider webs we have. But what really needs to happen when we repent and we want to blot out these sins, God needs to come in and kill the spider. He doesn't want to just get rid of the cobwebs. He wants to get down to the root of our sin, to the root of the burdens that we're carrying, and he wants to blot that out. Because again, you are not strong enough. And so church, I don't know what your sin is. Some of our sins are great. Some of them are small. But I just feel like God all week has been telling me, challenge my people to examine themselves. I want to move Pathway Church forward. I want to move families forward. But we got to get our hearts right. Because here's the reality. Justification, when that happens, when we believe in Jesus Christ and we are made right before a holy God, that's a one-time thing. Repentance is daily. Repentance is a turning away. 
Because remember, sometimes when life gets going, we just sometimes we start to turn back towards our sin and God's saying, repent, just turn away. So church, can we just take a little bit of time here? Can we just look inside ourselves? Can we just spend some time repenting and confessing? Maybe some of us, um, there's a very interesting thing that happens when we actually confess out loud with our, with our mouths. Do you guys remember uh, Pastor Bob Ritter that spoke uh, over the summer? Um, he was telling some of us that literally when you, when you repent and you say things out loud with your mouth, it like changes the synapses and the, the little bumps and things inside of your brain. And it literally changes your entire thinking by just saying your sins out loud. What an incredible God that we serve. So maybe in these moments right now, I, if you want to come forward, we'll have people that want to pray with you. If you want to find somebody in this room and just sit down and just confess what's going on. I don't care if it's big. I don't care if it's small. Here, here's transparency from one of your pastors. I sinned against God this week. And it may seem kind of small and kind of silly, but I have felt conviction over it like I can't even explain to you. I'm part of a little group of guys and we pray uh, and we fast for 24 hours. And we've been doing it, I don't know, a couple months. And so this week, um, I, I come home from our prayer time on Monday. It was amazing. We experienced God's spirit like we, like we have been, and it was just incredible. And so I get home. I'm starved. I didn't eat enough the night before, and I was trying to do really well. But then I started thinking about, I have physical therapy soon. My physical therapy is really hard. It's like an hour and a half of workout at this point. And I'm just like, so I broke down, and I ate some pizza. And so I texted all the guys and I said, hey, guys, I'm so sorry. Kind of trying to make light of it, but I, I broke down and I ate some pizza. And, you know, I promise I'll do better next week. And then it was really interesting as the week went by. I've been working really hard to get healthy. Um, I promised God six months ago I would do everything I could to get this back to where it needed to be. And all of a sudden I'm like eating at Taco Bell this week. I ate enough Halloween candy to kill a small child. And I'm looking back and I get to Friday and I'm like, why do I feel terrible right now? And I realized my eating got out of control this week because I made a decision on Monday to break my promise to God to fast and to seek his face. Because here's what happens. Sin starts out small and Satan will use it to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually that sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. And you'll look back and go, what did I do? So you may be sitting right now and going, okay, yeah, we're going to confess of the big stuff. God wants you to confess of the small stuff too. And maybe there's just some of us in here right now, we just have burdens. God says to give them to them. So we're going to respond here in, the, in, a, in a moment. And here's one last thing I want to share real quick that we heard at that conference. Jesus Christ never died on the cross just so you could cope. Christ wants to give you freedom. And imagine being able to leave this room with some of the weight of your sin lifted. I know some of you are weary from carrying it, but if you allow God right now in this moment, you can walk away free. Church, I'm just gonna sing over you and just respond however the Lord leads you to respond in this moment. sadness from wherever you've been come broken hearted let rescue begin come find
No sinner come near Earth has no sorrow That heaven can heal Earth has no sorrow That heaven can heal Lay down your
Lord says, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. And if you're feeling conviction right now, church, respond. Respond to that conviction. You're in good hands with the Lord. He loves you. His grace is sufficient. And he's a forgiving Savior. He wants restoration. He desires reconciliation. He desires your heart, though. So we're going we're gonna to stand together in this moment. Let's stand and continue to respond. If you want to come forward, if you want to grab somebody's hand and just pray with them, whatever that means for you in this moment, we're going to worship him and uh, allow him to continue to move in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Bye. 
What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus Christ my King What a beautiful name it is Nothing compares to this What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus Romans 8 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death church today if you have repented if it was true contrition of your heart God blotted it out those sins are gone let's walk out of here in freedom and here if you laid them down don't pick them up with you on the way out. They're God's now, not yours. Move forward in freedom. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I thank you for the moving of your spirit today, God. I can feel already some weight lifted of sin, God. And I pray that if there are those that are still experiencing conviction, Lord, may you break through. God, may your spirit break through and may they just fully surrender to you. It is the greatest thing you will ever do in your time here on earth is to begin to follow So God, we are thankful for the ministry of your spirit. We are thankful that we can come into this room and to experience you through your word, through the musical worship, through prayer, God. You are good. You are great. And you are for us. The God who knows the amount of hair on every person in this room loves us so very much. And may we be reminded of that over and over again. God, we thank you for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, go in freedom. Amen.